From The Conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day. Tony Burke is one of a number of senior ministers who served in the last Labor government. He held the portfolios of agriculture, environment and briefly immigration when the boats were coming. Now he's Minister for Employment and Workplace Relations, as well as Minister for the Arts. He'll also be Leader of the House when the Labor government is committed to improving standards. Tony Burke joins us today. Tony Burke, what are the lessons that you learned from being in government last time that you'll bring to your new job? Respect for the Parliament's really important, and respect for the public service, and also realising that you never enter a debate with all the answers. I think if you get that right, then your outcomes end up not only being uh, better outcomes, but also more sustainable, more likely to, to last. So yeah, the I'm not afraid of parliamentary debate. I think it's good. And I'm not afraid of consultation. I probably, you know, the different things when we were last in office that gets pointed to me most often is probably Murray-Darling. And the Murray-Darling plan that we ended up with, I'm, I'm not yeah, wild about how it's been implemented over the last nine years. But the truth is we ended up with a plan that was not my original idea when I arrived in the portfolio, but was stronger and more sustainable because of that consultation. So what won't you be doing this time round that you were doing last time? Oh, that's, that's a really interesting way to put it. The Well, well, I think I, I start differently in that there's a, a very small number of us who are in in ministries and a smaller number who are in cabinet the entire time of the last government. So I guess I start with the understanding that I'd reached by the end. Uh, and you know, when, you, when you start, you think, okay, there's all these ideas I've had in opposition and then you're a, a bull at a gate wanting to, wanting to start implementing in every way. Uh, this time around, I, I certainly know the, the values that I want to implement and uh, the principles behind each policy that I want us to get to. But in terms of how you then do that, how you nuance it, where a department will be able to provide advice that protects you from other pitfalls, and where a, a stakeholder will will say, not just a peak lobby, but often it's the the individuals, whether it's a worker at a at a workplace giving a particular story of their circumstance or or whether it's an individual business, you'll get examples that had not been foreseen. And I and probably more aware of, of the vulnerabilities of every starting point than I was last time. Well, let's talk about a starting point. In the area of workplace relations, what will be your first priorities? Some of them are driven by uh, events that are already happening. So the Fair Work Commission's already dealing with the annual wage review, and there's a, an immediate priority to be able to, to, be able to uh, deal with that. And uh, the Prime Minister's already made uh, a number of comments about the sort of submission we'll be taking to the, to the annual wage review. Uh, there's also the wage review happening uh, in the care economy, and so that's going to be important for us to engage with. And the other thing that hasn't received much uh, publicity, but the Commission has made a specific ruling about family and domestic violence leave, uh, where they have asked the parties to come back with their intentions. And so there's some work to do immediately uh, on that in, in framing how, how we as a government will go back to the Fair Work Commission and how we in turn will legislate for family and domestic violence leave in Australia. 
Now, just on the care economy, care workers submission, we know that you support a minimum wage increase of the level of inflation, even though that number mightn't be in submission. But will you be indicating a level of magnitude for the care economy? Because I think the claim is for about 25%, is that right? Yeah, the, the commitment we've made is to back a pay rise and exactly how uh, how we frame the pay rise in terms of the submission that we've made is, is not a decision that government's taken yet. But we, we start with this principle, which is you know, a whole lot's been made of the workforce shortages in the area. Low pay is part of that story. There are a large number of people qualified to work in aged care who have left the industry because of challenges with the low pay and challenges with insecure work. Uh, the experience of working if you're in a place that's short-staffed makes you more likely to leave and then contributes to the short staffing. So there's a, an issue of wage justice for the workers themselves. There is also an issue in how this case uh, transpires that goes to the capacity of the system to be able to function properly as well. So doesn't all that argue for the government to indicate some level of magnitude? Uh, it might, and I'm not ruling that out, but it's something that it's something that we'll work through in terms of exactly how you frame it. There, there are some aspects of this where you you sometimes are better off presenting the evidence and letting Fair Work Commission work through the balance. There are other occasions where, for particular parts of an industry, like what we're doing with the annual wage review, where we draw some lines in terms of government policies, such as low-paid workers are not going backwards. So just on that point, do you think there's a case if the Commission gave a 5.1% rise for the minimum wage for that not to flow through to awards or to all awards? I can't imagine a situation where uh, it didn't, where there was no flow through at all. The Commission always has the capacity to work out whether how the flow through might happen. There's always been, in the, already been in the case so far, some uh, discussion back and forth from the bench where they floated the concept of potentially doing a flat dollar rate increase rather than a percentage increase so that the flow through happens differently. The commission will work, work that through, but certainly there are many awards that are not far from the minimum wage. And when we talk about the heroes of the pandemic, a lot of those people are on those awards. So while the, the focus has been specifically minimum wage, I tend to use the term uh, low paid workers. And this is a big shift from the perspective of the previous government to the perspective of the Albanese government in that the submission that the last government put to this annual wage review had a chapter heading, the importance of low paid work. They, they in fact viewed low wages as being an economic priority. That is no longer the view of the Australian government. Certainly the former government didn't want wages to be rising in the Commonwealth public service and wider public sector. Would this government take a different view on that, which would contribute to some increases in, in real wage increases? Katie Gallagher will have, will have responsibility uh, for that part of the government policy. Certainly there, there is a link between public sector uh, pay rates and what happens across the rest of the economy. Uh, and certainly there are aspects of how the the government has negotiated that has been part of the Australian story of depressing wages. The additional principle, though, that um, I, I take the opportunity to refer to, even though it's not specifically in your question, 
is in terms of secure jobs, we've undertaken to be a model employer. Now, one of the greatest areas of job insecurity of people on short-term contracts and on jobs that could have been in-house being outsourced is in fact in the Australian public service. Turning that corner is going to be a big project. I've certainly already in my first briefing with my department started to work those principles through. Can we turn to the Jobs Summit? That's going to be held in September. Is that the plan at the moment? Look, we, we're wanting to get it. I, I'm After this, I'm having a, a meeting with my department to see where they're up to on this. So uh, I'm, I'm not able to give anything specifically in terms of dates, but it is the plan to get it moving quickly. We're not wanting to Before delay. the budget anyway, yes. which is October. So how do you think of this? What do you want to achieve out of it? And do you think it'll be a summit rather like the Hawk one of 1983, which was quite a, a long process, most of a week? Look, I think the best way to describe it is saying that it will be quite different to what the government did, the previous government did. Um, I've still got to get my language right here, but what the previous government said did with respect to the roundtables when they had the theory of bringing people together. Uh, and if I contrast the, the Hawke-Keating approach to the roundtables from Scott Morrison and Christian Porter, the contrast I think is this. Both groups brought a mixture of people to the table, but the Morrison government, all they brought to the table was the table itself. They said, here you are, here are the issues, see if you can agree with each other. What the Hawke-Keating government did was brought, you know, they brought Medicare to the table, they brought superannuation to the table, they brought different things to the table that were designed to make it easier to bring the parties together. So while people will start thinking, okay, jobs, are we only talking uh, industrial relations, which is of course part of the job story, but then you say, no, 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 training has to be relevant here. Uh, a series of other levers uh, available to the government have to be part of the conversation other things the government can do in easing cost of living probably find their way in. So a broader conversation creates the possibility that parties can can broker compromises more easily. So how long would it run for? Uh, that decision hasn't been made and we, we haven't had a conversation about that. Myself, Jim Chalmers and the Prime Minister yet. And out of this, there will be a white paper. Or That's that right. will start a white paper process. And what are you hoping to achieve from that white paper? We came to, to office with, with a plan for secure jobs, a plan uh, to grow the economy and to make things here in Australia again. What we now want to be able to do is have a white paper that fills out the detail to make all that possible. So that would cover the labour market, it would cover immigration, it would cover training, manufacturing even, as broad as that or more narrow? Uh, look, the, the final decisions on that, they won't be long before they're made, but they haven't yet been made. If I, I think the, the starting principle is that it will be, if you take the working groups that happened, uh, what were nearly two years ago now, or one year, hmm, two years ago nearly on, on that, we are talking about a much broader conversation than those. But exactly how broad, I'm, we're talking about decisions that haven't been made. In terms of uh, the industrial relations system, one of the problems there is obviously that the enterprise bargaining system is not working as it should. What do you think needs to be done most urgently there? And have you made any start in your thinking on how you want it to operate? I made clear a number of times during the last term 
that we needed to find ways of getting bargaining moving again. We didn't take much in the way of specific policies to the election because uh, the complexity of the problems with bargaining, uh, uh, I wanted to have the support of, of a department to be able to work through all of that sensibly. Uh, some people go for a really simplistic thing of saying, oh, we'll just change the better off overall test back to the no disadvantage test that was there in the Keating years and forget that there was an entire architecture around that in the Keating years that's now quite different. Uh, the productivity improvements that were possible back when enterprise agreements first started, a lot of those productivity improvements were driven by the end of demarcations. Now, that work has been done. So how much of a productivity dividend is there in enterprise bargaining now? Certainly, we, if we wanted to get a similar productivity dividend, we've got to look at, okay, where exactly would that come from? It's not a, a straight magic pudding, you've got enterprise bargaining, it happens. Uh, the problems that we have in the economy now are quite different. Uh, yes, we're dealing with high inflation at the moment, but the high inflation we're dealing with is principally internationally driven. It's not being driven by wages. For Hawke Keating, we were talking about very much a wage price spiral. Uh, so breaking the back of inflation involved wage restraint. What we have right now is a situation where the cost of living crisis does demand we find ways after very moribund wage movement for a decade of getting wages moving again. So we're facing a different set of problems. We want to be able in bargaining to find ways to improve productivity and uh, we want to have a system where it is easier for parties to reach agreements. Now, exactly how all that happens is, you know, is the purpose of the conversations that are come. Now, you're leader of the House and we're hearing a lot of talk about a gentler, nicer way of parliamentary discourse, but I think I've heard this before. What do you really think can be done and what are you planning in the way of tangible changes to improve how Parliament operates? Some of the... Well, I'll start with this. I don't want us to become a, a quiet, polite dinner party. I don't think there's... <laughs> I don't think that's a danger. <laughs> yeah, but but not, but also I wouldn't want it in that I think there is real merit in getting 151 people from around Australia with different views, putting them together, and when there are issues that they strongly disagree with each other on, the debate is fierce and passionate and real. I think that matters, and I think it's good for democracy. So when some people say, oh, you know, will you get rid of all the anger and things like that, I wouldn't even want to, and so I'm not pretending uh, to try to do anything like that. I do think there was a sharp decline. I'm not pretending the parliament was loved by the community before then, but there was a sharp decline in standards of the parliament over the last three years, really sharp, in a way that I would not describe the Turnbull government or the Abbott government for that matter. The sharp decline effectively was question time became nothing more than sledging. Now, the, it is right. I, some people say, oh, does that mean you'll get rid of Dorothy Dix's? No not going to get rid of them, for the very simple reason. It's proper and reasonable and important that when the parliament is full, which it is for question time, that government ministers will be able to inform the House on what the government's doing. That's important. So that needs to stay. But what we've seen over the last three years, almost every question finishes with, are there any alternative policies? And some ministers get 15 seconds in before they start talking about the alternatives. Now, that can't go on. Now, you don't need a standing order change to change any of that. That's about the demeanour of the government. Second thing that I think declined radically over the last three years is oppositions will always try it more often than is reasonable. 
I, no, no doubt I did too. But the interruption of question time, to stop question time and shift to a full debate, is something that governments should be open to on different occasions. For three years, in terms of there being a hostile debate launched from the opposition, not one was accepted by the government. Not one. Now, that's not just different to how it was under Malcolm Turnbull and Tony Abbott, Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard. It's different to how it was under John Howard and, and as far back as you want to go. We have never seen a parliament that was so scared of a public exchange of ideas than what we saw in the last three years. Once again, you don't need a standing orders change for this, uh, but you can expect that there will be times when the opposition launches a debate in the middle of question time and it's felt as a bit of a stunt and it gets shut down and that'll be life. But don't think that'll happen every time. What about supplementary questions? The, the biggest issue that I have at the moment is, is not on supplementaries. So I, the crossbench have raised it. They want to have a conversation with me. Instinctively, I don't start there. So I'll, I'll put down that. But they've asked for a conversation and, and I'll have that conversation with them in good faith. But you're not I think inclined. I don't start that way, no. The, the bigger issue I think that we have to work out is how do we make sure that a larger crossbench has the opportunity to fully participate in the different forms of debate, including question time. Now, at the moment, the standing orders say there's one question from the crossbench. With a crossbench as large as what we're now facing, that's just not sustainable. We're, we're going to need to work out how we do that, but that then creates a different problem. So it used to be the case if an opposition then launched the big debate, the suspension of standing orders, they would usually do it after the crossbench question had been asked and the crossbench wouldn't lose out. Now, if you go to a big debate, depending on the timing of it, you're potentially knocking out other crossbench questions that might happen later in question time. So there's a bit of complexity in working out how we make sure that we improve the debate in the parliament, but don't do it at the expense of a very large number of Australians who've chosen to vote for crossbenchers and need to make sure that those members have their voices heard as but well. But routinely, they're going to have to get more than one question Absolutely. per Absolutely. question yeah. time, which is what they've had. Yeah, yeah, that, that will have to be fixed. So what, two or...? I, effectively, their participation in the parliament has to, be, has to be as close as possible in the mathematics to their representation in the parliament. Um, and so effectively, question time alternates government opposition. If you look at the numbers, you're sort, of, you're sort of roughly in the realm of a quarter of the people sitting on the opposition side are crossbenchers and three quarters of them are, are, are opposition members. That's sort of roughly the, the, the maths of it. So we'll have to work out something that takes that into account and make sure. Because otherwise, if you don't do that, you're effectively telling a very large number of Australians that because they didn't vote for a major party, their voice is going to be heard less. Now, you can't do that, uh, even though I wanted them to vote for you know, one of the major parties anyway. So you, you need to make sure that the, the parliament allows people in proportion to the share of the seats that they've won to have contribution. That means in private members' business. It means in debating lists when we're debating legislation, and it certainly applies to both question time, and we're going to have to work out how it applies to the MPI debate, the matter of public importance debate that happens straight after question time as well. 
Just finally, you're also Minister for the Arts. What do you see as the major couple of issues to be addressed in that area? And what are your own interests in the arts and culture area? I know you like the guitar (laughs) and uh, you're a bit of a a performer around the building on that, but what more interests do you have? Thanks, Michelle. I'll I'll do the the policy first before I get indulgent at the end. In terms of the policy, I was was our last arts minister. So it, it... I haven't checked. I may well be the, the only one who's come back uh, in the same portfolio that they, they had when we, where we left off. One of the things that frustrated me greatly when I became Arts Minister, it was just after Simon Crean had launched the cultural policy. Australia's had cultural policy. It wasn't called that specifically under, under Gough, but we, we had it under Paul Keating with Michael Lee as Arts Minister. And then we had it under Julia Gillard with Simon Crean as Arts Minister. When we lost office... The, gov- the new government, the Abbott government, didn't just replace it with a more conservative cultural policy. They abolished it and pl- replaced it with nothing, which has meant for every department there has been no guidance on the fact that in cultural terms, what the arts, events, entertainment sector do matters to who we are as, as Australians, and that affects your education policy, your health policy, your trade policy, your foreign affairs policy. Nor has there been any guidance that these are serious industries. And these are serious jobs. I argued very hard when Scott Morrison was originally resisting it for there to be a wage subsidy. And I'm glad JobKeeper was created. But if you were going to design a wage subsidy to exclude as many arts workers as possible, you'd probably design it the way they did. Uh, And I don't think that would have happened if there'd been a cultural policy in place guiding departmental advice as to the importance of this sector. So getting cultural policy back on track is a priority that might sound at first for people you know, a bit airy-fairy, a bit all over the place. It matters to centering the role of our cultural institutions and arts workers as to where they fit in how Australians see themselves, how, how we see each other and how the world sees us. Now, my passion for this comes from a, a long time. The, the guitars sort of know, and I still have a piano lesson uh, once, once a week, um, and the where we're working out which bits of furniture you're in my office right now, uh, which bits we get rid of because there's a keyboard that has to go here and an amplifier that has to fit in the corner as well. Uh, but I think in these jobs, you can easily get trapped in a world of nonfiction. I think you can get trapped in a world where you are just constantly dealing with the facts in front of you and that doesn't leave room for creative thought. And so, you know, the... The music I'm fairly well known for these days, and I, I, I travel with a guitar. I've got one that fits in the overhead uh, wherever I go. And uh, yeah, late night news doesn't come with a soundtrack, so I can provide one over the top. Uh, but those little breakouts, I think, matter. Uh, since I was 18, almost every day, I've read a, a short poem out loud. I just have poetry books around where I am, and I read one out loud. And it just for that moment, you, you get away from your world of, of nonfiction, and it helps you be creative. Paul Keating tells a, a wonderful story that, that's affected me deeply of getting a series of cabinet ministers around to his home. A few of them used to gather on a Sunday afternoon at his place at Red Hill. And on one occasion, he said, they, and they discussed the cabinet agenda for the following day. And at one point, he said, no, 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 everyone needs to stop. I need to play you this. And he put on Mahler's uh, Resurrection Symphony, got to the end of it and said, and they all looked and thought, oh, yeah, that, that's nice. And Paul said, no, no, but what does it mean? And those around, the other ministers said, oh, you know, it means it's good music. You know, what are you getting at, Paul? Paul said, no, no, what does it mean? 
and they didn't know what he's asking. He says, it means we have to do better because there, there can, when with the arts in all its different forms, it doesn't just take you outside your world of nonfiction, but it gives you a capacity to imagine and create in a way that a standard brief won't necessarily get you to. Now, that's really important for me in the way I do my work. I think it's really important for us in, as a nation. I don't think we've had an arts minister see it as a priority in that sense for a long time, and I really want to bring that back. Tony Burke, thank you very much for talking with us today before uh, a lot of very intense uh, non-fiction briefings that you're going into. And that's all for today's Politics Podcast. Thank you to my producer, Ellen Duffy. We'll be back with another interview soon, but goodbye for now. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevier. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com. 